That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? One disco. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs on the fighting for the gay disco. What are there are no slurs here? Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains. And the opposite is America. Because America is now one big gay disco. Our most requested guest. Uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's what they That's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. One big gay disco. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think that God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe so. you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? One big gay disco. Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. MJ Live, it's Friday afternoon, South Bend, Indiana, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But before it does, we're going to have a little discussion about uh, something important that just happened in England. It was the coronation of King Charles III. King Charles is six months younger than me. Uh, uh, whatever that has to do with anything. And today we have with us a guest uh, from England, someone I've talked to before. We have Theo Howard, uh, who is coming live from England, who's going to talk to us about the coronation and its meaning for England. Are you, are you there, Theo? Good evening, Mike. Yes, I can hear you. It's uh, Good. been a little while. Well, Theo is an editor with uh, One Peter Five, and he's had articles which have appeared in in uh, Culture Wars. And we've already had a preliminary discussion about this type of thing because we were talking about beauty and England. And <clears throat> is the coronation a form of beauty? Is that the way you would describe it? Yes, it is, among other um, qualities and aspects. I really enjoyed the discussion you had there uh, with Rachel Fulton Brown and Milo Yiannopoulos, um, another guest. I'm afraid I, I can't remember his name, but Octavio um, Sequeiros from Argentina. 
very good contributions. Very interesting what you were saying about English poetry. Um, that's an aspect of English culture with which um, I'm not as deeply familiar. But uh, I certainly recognize um, some of the points that, you're, that you, uh, you gave there about the English preoccupation with aesthetics, um, particularly in the post-Protestant revolutionary era. Um, Dr. Plinio Creed Oliveira said that the English people are were so sweet-natured that it obliged Protestantism to adopt a Catholic garb in the particularly preposterous uh, form that is Anglicanism to maintain the appearances of the true faith while being emptied of its substance. And in a certain sense, um, that's what we saw with the the shadow of the Catholic rite of coronation with the outline, um, still very grateful to uh, to have today um, with the, the coronation of King Charles. And um, that's a feature that I see uh, recurrent in the in the English spirit with its with its uh, virtues, but also with its pathologies. Yeah, I, ha I have to confess I had mixed feelings watching this. Uh, uh, all the pomp and circumstance, it is it is beautiful. The clothing is beautiful. The music was beautiful. I got a lump in my throat when they played Zadok the Priest. Mm -hmm. uh, Handel's uh, great piece of music, great choral music. The English are famous for their choral music now. Uh, but uh, I had I had mixed feelings uh, uh, about it because um, I I just uh, it, pr beauty is a propydeutic, it leads to something else. Beauty is a transcendental, it leads to other the realm the, of finality uh, of which uh, is inhabited by other transcendentals, the good and the true. So uh, that's the question that came to my mind: Where is this leading? Where is this leading? Where is this beauty leading? Is it an end in itself or is it leading to something? What's what's the take on this in, in England? Well, I would submit that the uh, coron coronation ceremony did not only communicate great beauty, but did transmit the true and the good as well uh, in a deficient, uh, heretical but nevertheless derivative form, because what we witnessed is the last uh, Christian um, coronation anointing that exists, I, I, I believe. The, uh, the last coronation in Europe was of uh, Pope Paul VI um, back in 1962. And uh, what... Uh, what touches one in in viewing the the right is the the truth that is communicated that all power and authority comes from above and that the christian king's identity his his role is not to be served but to serve to follow the way of the master and the the coronation um symbols are resonant with that christian theory of kingship from the the crown symbolizing the crown of thorns belonging uh, of our savior the uh, coronation mantle representing the purple garment uh, placed on our lord by the romans the scepter recalling the reed uh, so the 
the essence of Christian kingship as being one of service and sacrifice is still, I think, uh, something that can be gleaned uh, from from watching that ceremony. So I, I don't think it's just empty pomp and ceremony. And I would also add that the English love of pomp and ceremony, I, I, I would trace further back. I would say that it's it inhabits the the deep regions of the English soul. And you can you can uh, see this with, for example, the Serum Rite, which was the most common uh, form of the Holy Mass in medieval England, which was especially renowned for its uh, for its love of ceremony, uh, for its uh, magnificence, for the uh, profusion of pro processions um, and the uh, the splendor of its rituals. So I think. I think all of those um, those qualities uh, are still uh, deep in the English soul, and this is an inchoate expression of that. Well, we had 70 years ago, we had the coronation of his mother. Uh, if you go back to uh, 1953, he was a five-year-old at that uh, coronation. Uh, over that period of time, the Queen of England, who was also head of the Anglican Church, uh, presided over the moral decline of the uh, English people. There was uh, nothing that came along, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, we had uh, the homosexuality, uh, we had abortion. Uh, not the, the, the queen did nothing to impede these things. As I said, correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's, that's right, uh, Dr. Jones. And indeed, I wrote an essay on this very um, difficult and tragic uh, subject for 1 Peter 5. Um, I think it was called Queen Elizabeth the Silent, where I um, begun by um, pointing to St. Thomas More's uh, uh, famous invocation of the Roman, Roman principle, he who is silent gives consent. And that was the, uh, the leap motif of Queen Elizabeth's reign, a, a silence in the face of incredible moral degradation right. and right. and national collapse now yeah. there is an argument uh that my friends uh jamie bogle and dr sebastian morello make that for the queen to have denied royal assent to those articles of the culture of death that were presented in parliamentary statute for her royal assent would have constituted um immoral sedition an act uh, an attack on the constitution of the United Kingdom, which was um, settled, unfortunately, but nevertheless settled um, with the Inglorious Revolution in 1688-89, which established the uh, the ultimate principle of parliamentary sovereignty. Right. Now, I, I have my own counter arguments to their argument there, but it, it's not quite as simple as, as the Queen um, simply um, uh, agreed to these... Um, terrible wounds to the English nation uh, without any kind of uh, moral scruple. We don't know her heart, but um, there, there are constitutional questions and legal questions uh, at play, which which touch right at the heart of what it means to be Catholic and English. And that's why I think they're so interesting. Yeah, well, we have uh, she has the power as head of the church, it seems to me, to say something. And as you said, silence gives assent. But the, the point here is, should as I said before, that the beautiful should lead us to the good and the true. And it, in this instance, 
uh, it is not. Uh, it didn't. It hasn't. Uh, I, I have to. I have to bring up something that's uh, on my mind right now. Uh, I just finished an article on uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who goes back a long time, back to the beginning of my uh, intellectual odyssey. Uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on Nathaniel Hawthorne. He uh, was raised in New England. He considered England his old home. Uh, he wrote a book to that effect, talking based on his uh, journals in England. Uh, he wrote the biography of um, Franklin Pierce, who became president and rewarded him by making him consul in Liverpool uh, in the 1850s. And he made enough money there to go to Rome. Now, this is a man who was raised in English villages, New England villages, until he was 50 years old. Uh, you know, the clapboard houses, you know, the, the austere uh, Unitarian clapboard churches and so on and so forth. And suddenly mm -hmm. he shows up in Rome and is confronted with uh, St. Peter's Basilica. Nothing like this in New England. And it precipitates a crisis uh, in his life because in this instance, the beautiful uh, is leading to the good. This is leading him to the to the true as well, to the truth of the Catholic faith, which was in its full flower, whatever that means. Pius IX is Pope at this point. Uh, he used to take walks through the Vatican Garden. His daughter, Rose, bumped into, literally bumped into Pius IX walking through the uh, Vatican Gardens. And Hawthorne is brought, uh, this is the way I see beauty. Hawthorne is brought to the door of the church. He's brought physically to something that really symbolizes something here. It's not like the empty shell of a church that was once Catholic. Bolton Abbey springs to my mind. Have you ever been to Bolton Abbey? No, I've been to lots of um, Anglican churches, not that particular one. Well, Bolton Abbey, uh, the, you walk in there and there is a sign at the door that says mass has been celebrated in this building since 1252 or something like that. And you walk in and wait a minute, there's a wall separating the sanctuary from the rest of the church. Well, where was the mass celebrated? There is this, this block in English history. There is mm -hmm. this repression. There is this cutting cutting off from the past that comes up periodically. When you have a guy like uh, Burke, Edmund Burke, an admirable fellow, one of the creators of conservatism, I would say, according to Russell Kirk, certainly, uh, was confronted by uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, the uh, first feminist, you could argue, who says to him, uh, oh, you're interested in tradition. Do you want to go back to the time when Englishmen worship bread as God? Well, the answer was no, because he wanted to go back to the glorious revolution and not beyond that. And I think this, this is part of what comes to my mind. This is uh, part of what Hawthorne has to deal with because he lived in New England. And New England is the legacy of this rupture was founded on the legacy of this rupture of with tradition, rupture with the Catholic Church, that Hawthorne was now being offered uh, the chance to heal in some type of personal way. By the way, in doing this article, I also found out that the original idea for the Scarlet Letter, you know about the Scarlet Letter, right? The novel, the famous novel by yeah. Hawthorne. 
It's about a Puritan minister who is a saint because you have to be a saint in order to be part of the church. It's the visible elect on earth. Uh, but what happens when a saint commits adultery? And that's the premise for um, the Scarlet Letter. And it turns out that he wrote a letter to James Russell Lowell saying the original plan for the Scarlet Letter was to have Dimsdale, the minister, go and confess to a Catholic priest. This haunted Hawthorne for his entire life. Now, what, what I'm trying to say here, getting back to that term of beauty as a pro piduty, it leads you somewhere. It leads you to the realm of transcendentals. And in this instance, uh, the beauty of the cathedral led Hawthorne to the confessional. Hmm. Yes, because our Lord was present in that cathedral as well. It was full of life. Right. Whereas, as Dr. Plinio said, the average small, humble parish church in Rome has more life in it than the great Gothic cathedrals um, of England, sadly occupied by the Anglican conventicle. So where is this leading? Where, where does this lead? Well, on the same sad, dismal path um, fo being followed by all of the post-Christian uh, apostate nations of the West. As Bishop Williamson says, grey England has become gay England. Right. Yeah. I have a friend who just moved there from, uh, moved to London from uh, uh, Delhi, uh, Indian guy, became a Catholic. Uh, uh, I, I had some role in, in that. Uh, he shows up, he wants to check out what's going on in London. The first thing that pops up is some type of celebration of homosexuality. So he sent me the thing and I wrote back to him. I said, did you, did you buy a return ticket? Uh, did you, uh, uh, anyway, this is the, the sad situation. How long is this going to go on? In other words, how long can you be cut off from the point of this beauty, the purpose of this beauty? How long can you be cut off? That, that, that's, that's the question that's going through my mind at this point. Well, I would wager that the, the uh, sacral coronation, or at least the, the, the shadow of a sacral coronation that we witnessed uh, last week was quite possibly the last uh, of its kind um, that we will see. I think that that tension will become too much and that uh, Prince William, whose coronation one must assume uh, won't be too many decades away, um, will um, formalise some of the um, the ruptures that have occurred in English culture, even in the last 20 years, the ever-increasing um, descent of the sexual revolution and the uh, disintegration of culture. Um, I was quite struck and and pleased by the uh, the general sort of wholesomeness of the coronation and how it wasn't overly tainted in a way that it could well have been by Globo Homo and its like, attendant horrors. Like, like, I, I didn't see a single rainbow flag. Okay, um, okay. That would be one instance. What, what, how, what else, what were you fearing? The rainbow flag? What, what else, what were you, uh, what were you afraid of? I uh, anticipated that the, the ceremony itself would be uh, corrupted and that some of the actual prayers uh, would be um, more uh, suggestive of liberalism and uh, even 
uh, you know, cultural Marxism. And there was there wasn't any of that. The other than a change to the coronation oath, uh, the the worst part of the ceremony, of course, as that we recognise as Catholics, where the king um, vows to defend the Protestant religion. Um, there was a reference made there that in so doing, he would create an environment of toleration for people of all faiths, uh, which was a which was a um, a sort of nod towards um, religious pluralism. Uh, other than that, the the actual um, service remained largely untouched. Do, do you think Charles has changed in this regard as he's gotten older? Didn't he once say he wasn't going to be the defender of the faith, mm. but defender of all faiths or the, uh, other fa faith and, or something like that? Didn't he say that at some point? He said he would be defender of faith. And I think that uh, he remains true to that conviction in that he sees the great struggle a bit like some might say charitably with regard to John Paul II's interreligious um, shenanigans, uh, that the great struggle of our time is between um, any kind of spirituality and secular atheism. And so what is needed is a great sort of interreligious armada where um, the uh, uh, Catholics, Christians, um, make common cause with, for example, Mohammedans and Hindus who might recognize, for example, the the uh, uh, the natural um, society of the family and the importance of marriage to civil society. Um, so I think Charles is is a perennialist. He's influenced by the the um, perennial traditional uh, doctrines of thinkers like René Guinon um, and uh, Kumaraswamy and uh, I don't know about Evola, but certainly um, these um, these thinkers who believe in a common Prisca theologica, um, a pristine theology, or even a Sophia perennis, a, a, a perennial philosophy um, at the heart of all the great true religions. So it's kind of like a right wing uh, or pseudo right wing. Um, uh, Coalition. Coalition. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. And a sort of syncretism. Right. Um, but it means he is a traditionalist. So he in, will... in the English sense of conservatism uh, and, and the sense of Edmund Burke, is that what you're talking about? Yes, I think so. I think that's a large part of it. There was a program um, on ITV a few years ago, which looked at followed the Prince of Wales as he was then in his management of the Duchy of Cornwall, which was his which is his was his personal feudal estate as the um, the liege lord, and it showed his interactions with tenant farmers, which was uh, highly edifying. It showed he had a sort of Burkean conception of the social fabric, um, interacting with these these farmers and these crofters whose families had been on the land for generations, showing a concern for traditional materials, traditional architecture. In all of those aspects, I think he's his. Uh, his public um, actions are all um, are all to the good and um, ha have actually made, you know, on the ground uh, differences uh, for people, particularly in rural areas. Um, so it's, one, of, it's, one of the first things that drew me to his attention or where he appeared on my radar screen was his talking about traditional architecture. Mm. Uh, it struck me that that was uh, uh, something that was worthwhile talking about, especially at that time. And apparently he built a, a village along those principles and it's been successful. The people still live there. They like living there. 
Yes, it's called Poundbury. It's uh, close to um, my grandfather's home in Dorset. It is um, rather quaint and uh, it is uh, quite striking um, in its uh, freshness, these um, recreations of Georgian and mock Tudor architecture. Um, it can seem a little bit um, uh, kind of grating almost, but uh, give over time, it's the architecture is bedded in. And the um, important point, the, the fundamental point that all the modern architects who castigate uh, this development as kind of his kitsch dabbling in um, Disneyland uh, architectural uh, vernacular, say that um, what one thing, the, the, the fundamental point they miss is that all the people who live there Love it, right? Uh, the, the, the people. What do they know? <laughs> yes, he the, he's a man of the people in that respect, and it it goes back to the beauty point you made uh, in these issues to do with beauty. Uh, he's been a a, a prominent voice um, for which you know uh, English faithful English um, Catholics and and let's say Anglicans as well have have to be grateful for. Yeah, I went as I I mentioned. Uh, my dissertation, I finished it in 78, 1978, and left uh, for uh, Europe, uh, landed in England first, met with friends in Cambridge. And at that point, there was a, a, a neighborhood called the Kite because of the shape. Uh, and it was beautiful, uh, kind of modest worker housing, but beautiful. It was beautiful. There's no question about it. And uh, the reason it was on everyone's radar screen is because it was going to be torn down to make way for a mall. Uh, mm -hmm. Red Lion, was it Red Lion Mall or something like that? Some phony ass name associated with it. And people were up in arms, tried to save it, and they failed. They failed in saving that part of, of uh, English culture. It would have been great if, the, if uh, Prince Charles at the time had stepped in and stopped that. But uh, you're looking at... Uh, larger forces here. Uh, the, the question is whether any traditional culture is going to prevail in this world anymore. Because what you see here is that these Protestant, as far as I can see, Protestantism has run out of steam. Uh, yes. Scandinavia, there's no established church. Uh, not so sure about Scotland. Certainly, England is is suffering because what what, what uh, leadership is the church providing there? We're, yeah. we're also at a time where what leadership is the Catholic Church providing in Ireland against uh, the ruthless subjugation of the Irish people uh, through forced migration, gay marriage, uh, abortion, all of the usual forms of social engineering. Yeah. All of these, all of these forms. All of traditional European culture, the idea that uh, there was an ethnic group that could have its own culture and even its own state, it seems to me it's all up for grabs right now. As, as so the, the European people culture. are being punished for their apostasy. And, I, have, uh, in, I, have I have said that myself. Uh, and I, I said that to the, I say that to the Irish on a regular basis. And I try to say, to the, say it to the Germans, I can't get a, a, my, a, a foot in the door in Germany, uh, even though it's it's the only European language that I can speak uh, fluently, can't get a foot in the door there because of this ruthless social engineering that they were exposed to after World War II. Yeah. Yes, you very eloquently have uh, described that social engineering project, um, the uh, denazification program, which uh, identified even 
um, respect for the father figure as a, as a risk of fascism, as can be seen in the authoritarian personality, chapter 23. Right. Um, and this is a military grade psyop and England is particularly susceptible to the depredations of the American empire because of the shared language. Right. Uh, so as is Ireland. Uh, and yeah. hence we are uh, in a certain sense, just a suburb of Hollywood. Um, so these precious medieval forms as desiccated as they may, may be like the uh, coronation that remain are so precious and valuable. The common law um, I would say is perhaps the most precious of all. Uh, which is a gift that we bequeathed to uh, the col the 13 colonies as well. Um, th this is uh, why, for example, um, the number of fines that were given for not wearing muzzles during the COVID pseudo pandemic in England uh, were in the thousands. And the numbers that were paid were, I believe, about 13. Because um, under jury nullification, they were just thrown out. Now, that is not... Uh, a state of affairs that obtained in civilian law ju jurisdictions, such as in Spain and France, which offer much more scope for state tyranny. Right. So right. there are still precious inheritances from Merry England. Well, how did it uh, get from, this far? How did it get this far in England with all of those well, protections? The English, the English weren't faithful. I mean, I, I, I asked uh, Bishop Williamson, how is it that God allowed the... Um, fall of England into heresy when when one looks at the exhaustive research of someone like Eamon Duffy stripping the altars, which uh, conclusively proves the vitality and the exuberance and the piety of the English people in late medieval England. How is it that God would allow the, um, as you have documented, the, uh, the largest transfer of property in English history, i.e. mass theft of church land, um, which was exercised in um, uh, for the common good. Uh, how is it that God would allow that and allow for the king and the elites to lead England out of um, the church and to fracture Christendom in such a way that Hilaire Belloc actually said that if England hadn't um, fallen into heresy, then the Protestant revolution as a whole would have uh, failed, would have been crushed by the Habsburgs. Um, now, why is it that God allowed that? And Bishop Williamson said, well, it, it, because the English weren't praying enough. It, God's ways are mysterious, but there must England must have deserved it in some mysterious. Isn't this, some isn't mysterious this blaming, blaming the victim? Isn't this blaming the victim? I mean, <laughs> I, I uh, it, what ha look what something really evil was hatched in England at that point. Right. Uh, because it spread throughout the world. And, and if we want to look at the other side of the coin here uh, and the fact and the reason, for example, that uh, the emperor of Austria wasn't there and the Kaiser wasn't there at the coronation and the czar wasn't there at the coronation, uh, there's a, a two-word explanation, I think, and it's Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're talking here about the dark side of this, uh, this looting operation. Uh, that begat something that spread all over the world. Uh, one of the reasons to, I'm an American, uh, because of the way the British treated the Irish and because of uh, their, their attack on the Germans as well. That's the other side, isn't it? Yes, um, it's hard to um, blame uh, one individual um, 
for all of those cataclysmic events. Uh, you might say Judeo-Masonic revolution would be another two-word um, uh, cause, factor. Um, but uh, certainly the... Um, well, interestingly, in 1917, uh, King George V made the, in my mind, um, unforgivable uh, decision to not harbour Tsar Nicholas uh, and his family uh, after the provisional government offered to uh, allow the uh, royal family to uh, flee to England, uh, thus uh, condemning them to uh, you know, certain execution at the hands of the Bolshevik revolutionaries the next year. Um, and he then also decided uh, through an order of uh, state to allow English, uh, to allow the uh, royal princes and princesses to marry commoners. Uh, in other words, to marry native English, they no longer had to be of the princely rank, uh, which had always been the, the, uh, the uh, rules with regard to European royalty. Um, he, he started a, a democratic order of chivalry, which is a, a slightly sort of oxymoronic um, right. entity. Uh, and what he did, uh, David Starkey outlines this uh, in depth, is create a new sort of paradigm of, of monarchy. Uh, he changed the names of name, of course, for the royal family itself, from Saxe-Coba Goethe to uh, Windsor, uh, this totally sort of artificial change uh, as part of this new um, uh, model of monarchy that is the family monarchy to reflect the bourgeois family ethic of Middle England at the time, uh, of a rapidly... Uh, democratizing, quote unquote, uh, England at the time. Now, that uh, model uh, obtained for most of the 20th century, and of course, you saw it tested uh, most strenuously with the abdication crisis, where the divorcee Wallace Simpson was, um, uh, where, where Edward the sick, uh, Edward VIII um, wanted to marry the divorcee at a time when divorcees couldn't even um, be presented at court couldn't attend the uh, the royal enclosure at Ascot. Um, the Church of England at this time was pretty strong on uh, defending Christian marriage. And the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, uh, uh, Cosmo Gordon Lang, uh, impressed upon the king how uh, this was uh, inadmissible. Uh, we cycle forward to the 90s, and of course we have the, uh, the, uh, the tragedy of Princess Diana and uh, the divorce of the Waleses then. And by this point in 2020, we have the uh, 2023 of the debacle of Harry and Meghan and also the king, uh, sad to say, seemingly in sin, uh, living with his mistress, Camilla Parker Bowles. Uh, there's been no word of, of any kind of annulment there. She married uh, in a Catholic wedding, Catholic rite to uh, Andrew Parker Bowles. And at the coronation, there were almost as many Parker Bowles as there were Windsors in attendance. So what did we have here? We had that very modern thing. We had a blended family. Right. So the, Win the Windsors have, have abandoned this model of family monarchy where they actually, in a certain sense, symbolized, modeled, promoted, defended the British family. And um, what do they stand for now? Well, did they ever stand for? I mean, let's let's look at uh, go back to the Glorious Revolution. There was a legitimate heir. Uh, 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 he, uh, the problem was he was a Catholic and he was not acceptable to the powers that be and so they brought in a Dutchman rather than an Englishman who was the legitimate heir did this set a precedent? doesn't this set a precedent? it does 
It, the, the president, uh, Cobbett talks about it, but I mean, Shakespeare talks about it in Troilus and Cressida. Take but degree away, untune that string and heart what discord follows. This is Ulysses talking about the Reformation. Whenever Shakespeare talks about ancient Greece, he's talking about Elizabethan England. And he's saying that uh, once you depart from this order of things, uh, truth becomes the opinion of the powerful. And then okay. truth uh, finds its completion uh, is shoved aside uh, by the will to power and the will to power end up, ends up eating itself up, uh, becomes the wolf appetite and appetite devours itself. Well, that was a prophecy. I think that prophecy is being fulfilled uh, in, in England. The, the point is, what good is this ceremony if it's not backed up by some type of principle? Mm. Yes, there's been a slow leeching out of the Catholicity, the Christianity of the English people in that time. In God's mercy, it has been long and drawn out. Um, and there have been periods of revival, such as the uh, second spring of Catholicism in the 19th century, uh, for right. which we, right. we must be. We must that, be grateful. And that reminds me exactly of Hawthorne, because that's exactly what what was going on around that time. It's about Hawthorne's there about 10 years later in the 1850s. Uh, the, uh, at a certain point, Newman understood that the purpose of his movement was to lead him to the door. But he had to make the decision to enter. And the culture didn't do it. Uh, I covered this in the beauty book. What you had instead was the development of muscular Christianity as a kind of uh, surrogate for the Catholicism that they could have chosen if the Oxford movement had, had reached some type of uh, state of completion. Yeah, as you say, the precedent for subordinating um, religion to politics or political imperative, of course, goes back to Henry VIII's great rupture, his great wounding of England. Uh, with the Protestant Revolution, and as you say, it just it just snowballs from there. Uh, king James II, our last Catholic king, was also opposed to setting up a central bank, and that kind of done him, given him uh, much credit. Amongst fact, the... As soon as he was deposed, the Whigs came in and set up the national bank, and and uh, they brought Isaac Newton in to do make the coins. Quite so. So that that's where it comes back to the fundamental political ph philosophical issue of sovereignty as to who and who is actually sovereign. The city of London is a sovereign city state, which the king has to ask permission for to even enter. Yeah. And where the crown is not present on the uh, heraldry and the insignia of the city of London, this square mile of, uh, of oligarchic global territory, um, which has in a certain sense governed the fate of the rest of uh, Great Britain and then the British Empire thereafter uh, for for nigh on uh, three centuries. Right. It's like Disneyland. That's exactly the situation. Uh, is it Disneyland, the thing in Florida that Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. basically took away from? They they were a sovereign state. Disney World was a sovereign state, had its own yeah, government yeah. in the in the state of Florida until they uh, annoyed him and then he took it away from them. Uh, and it brings us back to uh, who, who's in charge here. Was that Wallace Simpson story, was that a cover story because the king was really uh, sympathetic to the Nazis and the powers like people like uh, uh, Churchill were determined to have a war and finish them off? Uh, I don't know. We'll never mm -hmm. know. That's I've heard that story. 
Uh, but the, but the, 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 the point, I, I, I get the sense that there's a moment of opportunity. And if the moment passes, it doesn't come back again. Mm-hmm. And we had, to, you're, you're, I think you're right to point out that the 1840s was one of those moments in England. And uh, it didn't happen. I think after Vatican II, there was a, a moment of opportunity. And I think that there were basically the Catholics who didn't want the Anglicans to, to join up with them. And so the Anglicans then ended up, uh, you know, the, the, the way they are today. Pomp and circumstance, but, uh, but no substance, as Tucker Carlson just pointed out. Anyway, are you willing to take some questions? Yes, sure. Okay, let's go. Let's go see what type of questions we have here. All right, I wasn't exactly sure if we were able to. We had time to do it, but we definitely have time to do it. Okay. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm Mike Bajakis. Uh, I help um, Dr. Jones run these podcasts here. Uh, just a quick, quick couple of rules for everybody. I always say, but for people who are new, might not know. Um, we do the question Q and A's uh, on Telegram uh, and all of our platforms. It's posted in the chat. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see. Uh, the let's see. No, there's no super chats required, so it's it's free to free to do it. Uh, keep your questions on subject, at least attempt to. Uh, try to keep to one question. Be respectful of time, and very important. Someone always forgets every week. Don't forget to unmute yourself. Okay, Telegram. Here we go. Who is up first? Let's see. Ah, Lord Charles Otto. Go ahead. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yes. So, uh, essentially, growing up, I'll try and make this quick because it might be a very broad, all-encompassing question. But uh, essentially, growing up, I was I was always prone to sort of anglophilia, as it were. And uh, I I am Irish, of course, but I I've had like sort of family ties going back. I've had my foot in sort of both camps. So I always wanted to sort of reconcile the, my Anglophilia with, with my Irish heritage. And that, that's where I grew up. That's where I live, of course. And I think a lot of what attracted me to it was, was sort of the idea of the pomp and circumstances of, of sort of the English character. There's something I was very attracted to. But uh, I think growing up, it was only later on, I realized that it was sort of a hollowed out sense of beauty. Like, as you said, Doctor Jones, it's 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 sort of a it's the beauty without the the good and the truth. And what I what I wonder is uh, where exactly because obviously the the established church in England and all that essentially is it, a non it, it, for all intents and purposes doesn't exist. It's a hollowed out in just institution. And what I wonder is that where where exactly. And this is, I, I asked this of both of you, uh, where, where exactly, what exactly does the future hold for England, uh, both spiritually and, tempor- and temporally? Do you think there is a chance that uh, the the English will reconnect with their roots and reconnect with the truth and the logos, as you say, Dr. Jones? Or do you think we'll have like a couple of more centuries of, of sort of turmoil and uncertainty? I mean, I think... A, something i would i would see is quite symbolic of this as being that that sort of that black gospel choir during the, the, the during this coronation service like you think that we'll have like a the, like it's perhaps american style evangelical Christ, christianity could make inroads or something 
or uh, do you think they might uh, the English might rediscover their Catholicism sooner rather than later? Uh, and uh, thank you and God bless. What do you think, Theo? Well, if I may just reframe your question slightly, I would say that we've talked about this um, this diminishment of the place of the Anglican Church in English national life, but I don't think you've seen a fundamental change in the identity of Anglicanism itself. Uh, it is remaining true to what it always has been, which is to be subordinate to uh, the will to power to the political interests in um, in England, uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, so if if in the uh, 18th century that meant um, uh, no um, ornamentation in their communion service, no stained glass windows, then that is what um, it established, um, but also um, prohibiting divorce. If in the 21st century it means putting a rainbow flag up, then that's what it will do. But it's not actually fundamentally changed. It is still um, fulfilling the the objectives, the the essence for which it was uh, constructed. Right. It was, um, it was created as a national church. It yes. was the looting operation was a deal where basically we'll take we'll take steal the church's property. We'll make you the official church as long as we can keep the property. You baptize what we do, and everything will be happy. Everything will be fine. So a bit, there was a kind of ethnocentrism programmed into this from the beginning. My my fear is that this ethnocentrism is going to cripple the mind of the uh, the. English people, I think it has already crippled the mind when it comes to thinking, and maybe the only way to approach this now is through beauty. So you had somebody like Roger Scruton, who was interested in beauty uh, toward the end of his life, but I think he was crippled by a kind of ethnocentrism. Couldn't couldn't really look at it in a, in a, a philosophical way. I, I also think that it's not just exclusively, and I also think that the two main uh, Thomas of the 20th century, Etienne Gilson and uh, uh, Jacques Maritain, were also crippled by a kind of French ethnocentrism that mm -hmm. was born, I think, of the uh, the great uh, achievement, if you want to call it that, of French Impressionism. And they became committed to a modernist aesthetic that was the antithesis of traditional, um, uh, traditional uh, understanding of art as imitation of nature. So Etienne Gilson said there's no difference between abstract and representational art. Well, wait a minute. Why would you say that? That was really dumb. Uh, and he's, he's one of the best that the, the, the church had. So I think in, in both instances, the, the beauty is important, but uh, it, 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 uh, unless, unless there's something that it's leading to, uh, what's it going to achieve? A holding action, maybe? I don't know. All right, let's go to the next question. Uh, let's see. Next, we have Liz. Go ahead. Liz, don't forget to unmute. Hi. Um, what I'd like to ask you, E. Michael Jones, please, we need you to speak to the people at UK Column. I think everybody here from England or Ireland will know about UK Column. They're the only ones who have spoken out about all the nonsense for the last three years. But unfortunately, 
like everybody else in, in England, they're very anti-Catholic. And we need you to talk to them and put some sense into their heads. Well, I'd, uh, I'd be happy. Who is this UK column, did you say? Yes. They're excellent on everything to do with COVID and the war and everything like that. But they seem to home in on the Catholic Church in terms of child abuse and that. They had a guy the other day, a former priest called Tom Doyle, speaking. And um, he was just so anti-Catholic himself, you know, this priest. And yeah. he was just, you'd think that the Catholics were the only ones who were abusing children, you know? Yeah. No, this, uh, look, I've, uh, what happens when Protestants stop going to churches, they become white. And it's hard to talk to white boys. I've, I've tried uh, <laughs> repeatedly. Uh, and I find that uh, they, they have this racial uh, narrative that they can't see through. Uh, this is the problem that I I've, uh, that I found and, and repeatedly. A, yeah, and there's a new political party that's very very Christian and very you know pro life and all the things that we would agree with, but for some reason they don't want to hear about anything to do with the. They call themselves the Heritage Party, but they don't want to they don't want to know about the heritage beyond the last five hundred years. That's right. That is the is fundamental so problem. Sad. That's exactly what uh, Edmund Burke uh, made clear when he went to go back to the glorious revolution and no farther. It's not going to work. The patrimony, no matter how much spectacle you have, the patrimony is evaporating if it hasn't already evaporated and is creating a vacuum that is now being filled by uh, a lot of Englishmen becoming Muslims. A lot of them. Mm. Uh, I, I don't understand uh, why they would choose that over the Catholic Church that existed in England for 900 years, but maybe Theo can explain that. Well, fundamentally, because uh, Mohammedanism comes across as self-confident and patriarchal, um, strong, whereas uh, this is where we differ, but I would argue because of the post-conciliar um, crisis in the church, and the basically de facto abandonment of the Great Commission by uh, the bishops of the Catholic Church um, and neglecting to talk about the supernatural and grace and the sacramental economy, uh, the Catholic Church comes across as effeminate and um, is, uh, is, is, is repellent uh, for that reason. Uh, if, if, the church, if the church men return to preaching the whole gospel, we would see a radical transformation. That, that's what these questions about the future always come down to. Um, I, I agree with you. And a classic example of what I'm, think, I, I'm talking about uh, happened this uh, past Holy Week where we were uh, looked at our missalettes and there was a warning against reading the Gospel of St. John because it might cause anti-Semitism. Right. I'm not making this up. It's as if the, the mass is a package of cigarettes and you might get cancer from smoking them. The Australian bishops uh, went even farther and said the gospel uh, gospels were not reliable guides to the Pharisees. Well, maybe the Pharisees were right. Maybe they maybe Jesus's followers stole the body. Where does this end? The main I'm going to say it. The main issue crippling the Catholic Church right now and preventing the spread of the gospel is Catholic Jewish dialogue. It has been doing this for 60 years, and it's a failed experiment, and it's got to end. We can't have 
uh, Jews telling us who our saints can be or what we're allowed to listen to during Holy Week. That can't go on. All right, want to do a next caller? All right, next caller. Here next we go. question. Yeah, uh, let's see. Bert JT. Uh, go ahead, Bert. So, I I'm an uh, I'm an historian from Belgium. Um, I have a question for Dr. Jones. Um, why was it always in history that um, the people that, for the most, sabotaged or charged logos or Catholicism itself for fellow Catholics? So if if you if we go back to history, um, I think so. I I I'm from the Low Countries. It was part of the Habsburgs, but. For most part of history, it was uh, for in the 16th century, 17th century. It was the French that um, actually fought against the Habsburgs and the the, the um, yeah, um, and also they supported uh, the the uh, Protestantism in in uh, Germany and uh, all other places. So. Um, just for geopolitical reasons, like last week, there was this uh, person, uh, descendant from the Vendée, said, yes, uh, France is um, it, it, it's a country with a divine mission. And uh, yeah, they also often call themselves uh, the, the oldest daughter of the church. But uh, just uh, because they uh, were so against Habsburg power, uh, they um, also, with uh, disastrous consequences like the Thirty Years' War, um, and I, I think if if not for the Habsburgs, we wouldn't even know. Person, uh, if not for the French, no person today would even talk about Luther anymore, because then the Habsburgs would have gotten this power to just uh, reconquer these Protestant countries in Germany, and this had disastrous. Uh, consequences for the entire European history and uh, even to today, of course. So yeah, I agree that the disunity in Europe, the power politics of the French. Uh, uh, yeah, you're you're right. Uh, Luther Luther addressed this when he said that Islam was the scourge of God. Uh, he meant uh, the Turks marching up the Danube because of cr Christian disunity. Uh, as soon as the Christians got unified, they defeated the Turks, and then but they kept fighting with each other. But I think that there, it, it, you, you can see England uh, role in this. The English, uh, the Whigs weaponized the Masonic lodges. They started uh, placing Masonic lodges in France, and that became the fifth column that overturned the, the Bourbon monarchy. And then the English got scared. They created a Frankenstein monster, and so they declared war on uh, the, the people that they had basically put in power. So, yeah, it goes back. And you, you can see a common thread here. I would say that the common thread is nationalism, nationalism as political religion, the religion to which a uh, European man apostatizes when he um, retreats from Christianity. And so uh, with the French, that is the prioritization of Le Gois, which goes all the way back to Philippe Labelle and the, uh, the end of the High Middle Ages, his conflict with the Pope, his claim of... Uh, spiritual supremacy in the realm of France. Uh, so there is a, a common commonality here. Um, David Starkey said that the Church of England is a form of English Shinto, where the English are really worshipping themselves. 
if you go into an Anglican church, you see more um, regimental flags than you and and national flags than you do uh, crosses and uh, pictures of the saints. It's this worship of national spirits, and I see that uh, in in uh, France as well, in Germany. Um, it's uh, it closing in on the uh, the imminent frame. It's a natural consequence of breaking with the universal unity of the church. You have these ethnocentric religions that crop up as a result. Of I saw it in Russia when I went to the Church of the Spilt Blood uh, in St. Petersburg. There are plaques all around about we conquered Kazakhstan here and we conquered this. It reminded me of uh, Westminster Abbey. Yeah. Next uh, next question. Okay, um, who do we got here? Uh, Roland, Roland von Wilmerst Zark, Zarsk, Zarst. Ah, don't even let me. Your your turn to speak. Go ahead. Question, Roland. Hey guys, uh, nice discussion. I'm trying to listen to what you're saying. I think the most important thing we're facing is the pride, identity, and heritage. If nobody knows who they are. They don't know what they are protecting and what they are in danger of. Europe, America is going through a crisis. Everything is a mess. Catholic Church is supporting this. Mm -hmm. So the thing is not just Christianity. It's deeper than that. And just by fighting the last war and talking about history is not going to help where we are headed. So I think we are avoiding the big question here. And the big picture is a big danger that is coming, that is we're in the mix of. Uh, the Western world is in crisis. Everything you are talking five years from now is not going to matter. Immigration is going to be the big changing factor. And the pride, identity, and knowing who you are, and if you are willing to protect it, that's the question. Okay. Well, I, I would disagree that there's there's nothing deeper than Christianity. All of history prior to the incarnation was a preparation for the the coming of um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God entering history, and everything after the incarnation is a response to the incarnation before He comes again and the end of the world. Um, so we have to first of all see with a supernatural logic, and what we're seeing all of these pathologies you've identified and you're quite right to identify those the, the crisis of identity the crisis of meaning they come because modern man has rejected god modernity is war on god and that's fundamentally what it comes down to and god in his great mercy and benevolence is teaching us this lesson that nothing is going to suffice as an alternative none of these false idols is going to restore the social order until we restore internal order which is to put is to follow the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And only by doing that will these all these other things be given unto you. So we can't make the logical fallacy here, the fallacy of the consequent, by saying, well, we want the fruits of Christendom, but we're not wet ready to embrace the roots. No, the roots must come first. The roots are the holy sacrifice of the mass restored to the heart of our social order. Um, the roots are an active life of prayer. Things that we can we can all do right now, get down on our knees and pray to God for mercy. So God in his, his mercy is teaching us that um, we must return to him, that that's the only way uh, by which uh, social peace and order will be restored. Everything else after that will be um, will be will be will follow uh, in its restoration. Um, so and that's, and that's the only purpose of beauty. 
ultimately. Yeah. It's to lead you to the transcendental, which uh, is exactly what happened to Hawthorne when he went to Rome and saw that art was in, inseparable from the Catholic Church. It could not have happened. All of that beautiful art could not have happened without the Catholic Church. Beauty leads you to the church, and then you have to take the step to go inside uh, based, based on faith. Beauty can only take you so far. Uh, and there's got to be some type of transcendental step after that. Let's have one more question. Okay, uh, from William Joyce. Uh, let's see. William Joyce. All right, go ahead. Uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Jones, uh, are you aware, uh, and your guest, um, I enjoyed the conversation very much. Are you aware of what's happening these days, very recently, in the world of artificial intelligence and the emergent capabilities yeah. of the large language models that are I developing? Am. I, I am. I, I have looked into this. I asked uh, ChatGPT whether sexual liberation was a form of political control. And uh, I got a, a, a word back from a robot who told me that she didn't have any personal opinion on this, uh, but that anyone who said it was really uh, uh, an enemy of mankind or something along those lines. Uh, uh, it was clear that a machine cannot think, a machine cannot prioritize because a machine cannot choose the good. Only the human mind can choose the good. That's practical reason. And so what seems like prioritization is all programmed into these things by the rich and the powerful who control the internet. We'd like to believe that, but they're claiming otherwise. They're claiming that these databases are exhibiting emergent capabilities that they were not programmed to have. In other words, that they, the word has become flesh. Ha! And um, ha! yeah, I'll and believe it's it when the I son see of it. man. Uh, it's, it's the son of man, and it. Larry Page, the president or owner, founder of Google, said he's waiting for a digital god as soon as possible. Ha! Keep waiting, Larry. Mm. But 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 this is the point. It is a psyop in the making. It is a false flag, and it's being pushed by those on the so-called right as well. I hope you're right. Elon Musk. Uh, these various characters that appear on Joe Rogan, the intellectual dark web, Jordan Peterson, all these people. It is yeah. uh, the next grade of false flag, of false spectacle, along with alien contact. Um, the philosophical reality that Dr. Jones has just laid what? out there, that something can't come from nothing. Uh, it can't exhibit um, qualities and characteristics uh, other than those that have been put in it by its programmer. That can't be surmounted. And exactly, so I would say it's on the level exactly of Jewish fable. It is doing. And that they're, they're as surprised by it as we are. Yeah, I'd say they're just acting. No, that, that's that's okay. just propaganda. Right. That's uh, just I, propaganda. Yeah. Uh, that's to keep you befuddled. They're saying, hey, I didn't say it. The, the machine said it. I didn't say he was uh, uh, an anti-Semite. Uh, the machine said he was an anti-Semite. You know, no, that's crazy. Sorry, machines don't don't act that way. Anyway, Theo, I want to thank you for coming on. We had a great discussion today. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. It's been a pleasure. Viva Cristo Rey. Viva Cristo Rey. <laughs>